We talked last time a little bit about uh, rabbinic Judaism last time I taught and just how really ungodly that is and the kind of the roots of where that came from. And I truly do believe that as, if you remember, I was sharing the story about Eliezer and the tree tipping over and we're being moved and the walls tipping in and all of that, that God was actually trying to, I think, reach them. And I think that he has continually done so. And so I do want to give you a reminder that though while I think Talmudic Judaism is awful, we need to remember that God's people, he is always drawing them to him. And I think that he has been speaking to them many times throughout the years, trying to bring them to know that Jesus is the Messiah. And this week we're going to see some of those Hebraic roots that we actually come from. That even from the beginning, God was drawing people like um, Nicodemus, and many others, even Paul, Paul who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so don't mix up Talmudic Judaism with Jews because they are two separate things, just as we might say there are Christians in the church who really do a poor example of um, showing who Christ is. And so... Um, with that in mind, we're going to kind of dive in tonight into the early Messianic church, and we're going to start moving quickly through history now and cover the first 300 years from like 100 to 300 A.D. Now that we saw how Talmudic Judaism was forming, how there, were, there was kind of a, an evil dark side growing, there was also a bright light starting to shine as well. Jesus promised those disciples that, you know, he would give them a memory for the word, that he was going to, uh, you know, spread the gospel. And indeed, that's what we're going to see tonight as we look at some history. Now, you might remember that I said that the leaders of the church at that time, uh, depending on what it was, maybe it was either the Nasi or the Exilarch, which was depending on which direction they were, North Jerusalem or Babylon. Well, in both cases, I mentioned that they had to be a descendant of David. We see that in extra-biblical writings that the uh, Apostle James became a very popular and well-known leader of the Zealots. Well, anyway, he ends up getting killed, and so as a result, then Simon which was the cousin of Jesus, the son of David, is going to take over and he becomes the leader of the Nazarenes. Again, this is extra biblical sources. But um, I told you that when Jerusalem was surrounded, they understood that Jesus had said, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, to flee to the mountains. And people saw the handwriting on the wall, and it was this Simon that led the, the Christians, the Nazarenes, out of Jerusalem to Pella, which is basically by Jordan, um, Petra area. And as a result, the Nazarenes were spared. And that meant that there was going to be a growth of Christianity. God was preserving a remnant. Always has, and I think that's very important for you to understand, this, this idea of a remnant. Remember that Elijah one time was fleeing, and he says, Lord, they have torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And what was God's response? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Just because all these evils were going on does not mean God was not being faithful. Preserving a remnant. And I believe the same is true to this day. We live in a very dark 
world filled with evil everywhere we turn, we see. And we must not forget God is faithful as well as being in control. And there is a remnant right now. Always will be. So James would be this Nasi, this ruler. We mentioned this before, but in Acts chapter 15, we see that um, Paul and Barnabas are arguing over an issue and finished. James is going to speak up in verse 19, and that was the final ruling. And everybody, okay, James has spoken. This is really what kind of the early council, or you might say Sanhedrin, of the New Testament looked like. Last time we showed you how the Sanhedrin of the Old Testament continued. Well, now we've got these Nazarenes who are not allowed to be in there because they're accepting this Messiah that they think is a, the, the other Jews think are a false Messiah. So they, starting with the apostles, organized their own ruling body. You might say, as far as from my upbringing, a district office of the church. And it is the Sanhedrin, which is the Jerusalem Council. Okay? And it was made up of the apostles and the elders, the, the early Christians there. And what they would do is send out rulings to the community that were both oral and written. Now, we see uh, some similarity to this, you might say, in Paul's letter to the seven churches. Okay, it would go out to the community. And this way is how Christianity would spread, by taking care of the whole body. In Acts 15, this is what we saw. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. And so he's the last one to speak, and that's the final ruling that is given, just so that you can see it there. In verse 15, it says, The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's, David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it. Don't miss that. God is saying, I'm going to rebuild this fallen tent. And that is going to be the body of Christ, ultimately. Verse 17, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So, we've already talked about this, but just to remind you, his judgment then is, hey, the Gentiles are going to go to the synagogues every Sabbath. They will hear the word every Sabbath. So they're going to hear the law of God, but in addition to that, or to highlight, we want you Gentiles to make sure you don't do this. Don't eat blood. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't eat food uh, strangled, uh, you know, animals that have been strangled, and abstain from sexual immorality. That was the message to the new incoming Gentile church. The expectation was that they would be going and hearing the laws of Moses and that they walk in this way. But what I want to highlight here as well is that there is a remnant of men who may seek the Lord. Don't think that God wasn't faithful to that. As Logan taught here a couple of weeks ago, his covenant was made to Abraham and then to Abraham and Isaac, and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then to Israel, the 12 tribes. He divorced them. He had to come up with a way to be faithful himself to bring them back, which is him dying on the cross. But, as I said before we had communion, that that didn't finish it. The wedding banquet of the Lamb, we see that theme of wedding from old to new to future. There is a remnant, and he is going to be faithful to that. In Acts 13, 
We see here it says, When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be the center at this point of this council, or this new Sanhedrin, you might call it. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. Then Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now, until 133 AD, according to history, we see that there were these bishops that lead the church in Jerusalem. And I want you to see that this church is a Jewish church. Not a rabbinic Judaism, but the Nazarenes, the way, Christians. Christians is not a bad term. Okay, It's in the Bible. They were first called Christians in Antioch. It simply means a Christ follower. That's what these Jews were, Christians. Today, Christians has become a term that means Gentile, or if the Jews want to join you, then you can become one. But that's not the case. It was a Jewish church. This is how it began. And in many ways, that's what it still is. And what I want you to see is that they're talking about these people, but notice the groups of people that he's talking to. Men of Israel and you who fear God. As a matter of fact, there's even going to be a third group. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of his salvation has been sent. Now when the congregation has, had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul. Then in verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. It goes on in verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, glorified the word of the Lord. So, we've got three groups of people, Jews, Gentiles, and proselytes. Okay, these Gentiles seem to be these men who fear God. The proselytes were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They went through their confirmation or their CCD or, or their new member class, whatever it is, to learn the ways of Judaism. They accepted it. And when that happened as a proselyte, you then became kind of a Jew yourself and you, you experienced the same benefits of a Jew, but not until you were converted. The Gentiles, those who feared God, they would go to the synagogue, but they didn't go through the membership class. And so they did not experience all the, the benefits of the synagogue. They had to pay a tax that you'll see as well. You might remember Jesus uh, when they asked him, who, who is it that pays? Is it you know, their own or the outsiders? Well, it's the outsiders that have to pay the tax. Okay? So just note those three groups of people. But why were they glad? Well, I, it's pretty obvious because they were being permitted into the synagogue. This is all going place. This is taking place on a Sabbath day in the synagogue. Paul is preaching this. And... They're being welcomed in. I don't have to go through the membership class. Well, you can see that that probably is going to go over, you know, like a lead balloon. I was going to give another analogy, but that one's better. <laughs> it, it, it's not going to go over well with the Jews. First of all, you, that's their money that they're losing. Um... Now, keep in mind, some of these Jews maybe even followed Yeshua at that time, too. But this is causing a growing split as the Gentiles are being welcomed into the church. 
The whole Bible, literally, is about that. Ephesians talks about the mystery of God. It ta- I think six or seven times, just in that short little book of, of Ephesians, it talks about the mystery of God. And you go, what is this mystery of God? And as you read through Ephesians, you see it's this, that the Gentiles would be welcomed in. How can that be? As keep referring back to the message Logan did, but that was so much of the point. It was a mystery. How can God take Israel, who he divorced, take them back? There is no way, because these, they're now Gentiles. They've been assimilated into the culture. God can't take them back. This is a great mystery. Not only you know those that used to be Jews, but even these pagans? There's just, no, this is for us, is the attitude they have. So there's a lot of arrogance and pride that goes on. Now, it's easy for us to look at them and go, how could they be so arrogant? But let me tell you, the tables have turned. And now we are the arrogant ones. Oh, the Jews? Oh, no, God has rejected them. No, we're the ones God came for. And it is a mystery for many that God is still being faithful to the Jewish people. It is a mystery that he still has a remnant of his people. So the tables have completely turned, and we'll see that more. But the bottom line is that these proselytes who went through all the rigmarole, the the membership class, they're happy, but probably a little disappointed as well, because, you know, how come you don't have to do what I did? And the Gentiles now becoming first-class citizens, co-heirs, is going to cause a a little bit of a rift. And so the Jews at this time considered atheists, or I should say they considered atheists by uh, Romans, but still allowed them to have, what did I write here? Jews considered atheists. Oh, there we go. The Jews were considered atheists by the Romans. But the Romans still allowed them to have a certain status within the borders of Rome because, well, there were a lot of them and it was probably easier. It wasn't that they necessarily believed their God. Some did. But when the Gentiles then began to participate in the synagogue, initially they had to pay the temple tax. They were Gentiles, but they still believed in God. But again, they didn't go through the membership class. So again, I kind of talked about this. But this increases the persecution. And so even among the body of Christ at this time, it's much like there is today. Try to find a church today among the body of Christ that does not have rifts going on and jealousies and prides and complaining and arguing. Well, that's what's happening in the early church. As you say, you know, if you ever want to find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. That's what's going on. It's no different than today. Churches are perfect until the people go in. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so, um, this is natural. It's what's happening, but we often tend to forget that. Because we think, oh, the early church was perfect and... All it was good, and you know, now we just have to go back to the early church and the Gentile. Once God, you know, gave it to the Gentiles, it was just all this great, you know, happy stuff. It's not. So what happened is the Jews began what's called the Bukhat Hamanim, which means a curse against heretics. It was a prayer that was added by the rabbis in the early 90s. And it was to remove anybody that didn't follow their rules. Mainly the Nazarenes. So now that you've got these strangers coming into the synagogues preaching, hey, Gentiles are welcome in. Gentiles are welcomed in. Proselytes are welcomed in. Jews were all the same. Then all of a sudden it's like, no. And the church splits. And so the Jews, many of which do not accept Yeshua as Messiah, and others that did, 
but primarily those that did not receive Yeshua then split off, would not allow the Jews, or I should say the Nazarenes, into their synagogues anymore. So they were being kicked out of the synagogues. Remember in Acts 15, that was the expectation. You're going to be in the synagogues. Not anymore. So what happens is this rift grows wider and wider and these Nazarenes are going to find themselves in a very hard, difficult place. We're not welcomed in the synagogues anymore. So where do we go? Well, this is where we have these house churches and things like that that we're seeing that Paul is going around and speaking to at this, you know, it's growing at that time. And so most of the people coming into the faith at this time are going to be Gentiles for two reasons. Number one, there are more of them. And number two, they were responding more favorably because they weren't bringing in all this baggage. I mean, look at what we teach and what we believe about the Word of God in whole Bible teaching that we believe the Old and the New Testament. A lot of people have a hard time accepting that. Why? Because they're bringing in all this baggage. Somebody who had never heard of all of the baggage before is more willing to accept the Bible as a whole. And that's the same thing that was happening here. So the Gentile church, again, when it first started, it was a Jewish church. That's what scripture says. The Gentiles are welcomed in. They're just a small little representation. But as time goes on, there are Jews that believe, but more and more Gentiles, and pretty soon the Gentiles surpass the Jews, and they begin to be the proud ones. And they begin to boast over the branches, as Romans warns. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. Okay? He says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in, meaning God's going to bring a bunch in. Okay, And then all Israel will be saved. But a time is coming. He says, don't be arrogant, be afraid. He says, God is going to spare those natural branches. Don't boast over those branches. If you do, remember this. Okay? God's kindness, tolerance, and patience was given to them. And it'll be given to you unless you reject it. And then God's judgment will be upon you as well. Anyway, bottom line is I want to show you what some of the early church then around this time, around 98 AD, I'm not giving you all of it. We talked about this when we talked about the Sabbath, but around 98 AD we start seeing some very negative views being written by early church fathers about the Jews. Here is 107 AD, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch. He wrote this, If we conform to Judaism, then we have not received grace. And he urged them not to do the Sabbath because the Sabbath was considered to be a Jewish thing. Guys, the Sabbath is not a Jewish thing. That's a Bible thing. That's a God thing. He said, it's absurd to have Jesus Christ on the lips and at the same time to live like a Jew. No, Christianity didn't believe in Judaism, but Judaism believed in Christianity. And in its bosom was assembled everyone professing faith in God. So, you can see this anti-Semitic attitude starting to creep in now. The Gentiles weren't playing the part that the rabbinic Jews wanted them to. They were being kicked out of the synagogues. They're claiming the Messiah for themselves. And then there were these Nazarenes that are, again, can't go to the synagogue, but hey, we want to follow the customs of Moses. We want to follow God's word. And remember, Paul did do that. In Acts 21, when he goes to Jerusalem, the Jews say, listen, the people have heard that you are teaching 
people against the laws of Moses and, the, and our customs to make sure that they know that this is not happening, do this sacrifice. Does Paul do it? Yep. Wait a minute. Paul would do a, a sacrifice and an offering? I thought sacrifices were done. Yeah, sin offerings, sin sacrifices are done. But vows and dedications and thanksgiving, that's not over. Zechariah 14 shows us that. So, it's creeping in here. And by 107 AD, the idea was starting to come out now that you could not be a Jew and be a Christian. That these things were an antithesis to one another. So, these Nazarenes that wanted to keep Passover, which, by the way, the Gentiles coming into the church originally would have done that. That was the expectation. Well, now, if you were a believer and you were going to keep Passover, you were considered to be, by many of these other Gentiles, you were put in the classification of Judaism. Remember, when I spoke last time, there was a huge difference between rabbinic Judaism and biblical Judaism. All biblical Judaism is, is whole Bible teaching. Jesus followed biblical Judaism. He would have rejected rabbinic Judaism. One is God's rules, one is rabbi's rules, man-made rules. But what was happening is the Christians then were lumping them all. Now, it's almost like I could relate to that today. When I do Passover or any of the festivals or even say that I you know, try to keep the commandments of God, people think that I am some crazy Jew, a rabbinic Jew. Yet, I'm not. Okay? That is exactly what these people were experiencing. You can relate to what was happening in the early church. There was something called the Epistle of Barnabas, written about 96 to 98 AD here. And it was written for the Jews who believed in the Messiah or the Nazarenes. It says the Jews lost their covenant forever when Moses destroyed the tablets on Mount Sinai. Jesus is for the Gentiles who are the true recipients of God's covenant, not the Jews. The keeping of the new moons are abolished as well as other Jewish law. There is only one law, the law of Jesus Christ. Now I can read this and go, oh my goodness, how, that's awful. But yet, do you know that is exactly what the church would teach today? Yeah. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. And what you experience is the same thing that was going on back then. Where was God's faithfulness? Where is God's remnant? Where is God's covenant? Where is whole God, the God's purpose of sending his son? I came only for the lost sheep of Israel to die, to take his bride back, to welcome others in. You see, there is nothing in Scripture that says any of this. But these are church fathers that are going to be saying things like this. Justin the Martyr, first century, from the 130s to 140s, wrote two major theological treatises. Um, they were called the First and Second Apologies. And he's basically writing in a world you know, that's dealing with three different competing philosophies in theology, you've got Greek, you've got Jew, and now you've got this crazy Christian. Okay? And he writes to build a theology stating that, you know, kind of like a, a, a doctrinal book to state why we believe what we believe. And he had four pivotal events in history for his theology, and it is still accepted and taught in most seminaries to this day from the 130s. Here is his main treatises. You've got creation, you've got the fall, and you've got redemption. 
and then consummation when the Lord comes back. So today, when we see much of, even like, who knows, answers in Genesis, the seven seas. Anybody? What is Creation? Catastrophe for the flood. I can't remember them either. Somebody look them up. Because if I remember right, I think it's going to follow the same pattern. This is what we're going to see in Christianity even to this day. Like I said, almost every seminary, these are the main... Like, if you're going to make an outline of Scripture, here it is. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, okay. corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, consummation. There you go. Same problem. You see the problem? Even the seven C's of answers in Genesis, creation, um, what was it again? Corruption. corruption, so the fall. Catastrophe. catastrophe, Noah's flood. Confusion, the Tower of Babel. We've got from Genesis 1 to Genesis 10 there. Where's the next jump to? Christ. Christ. New Testament. What do we got here? Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Answers in Genesis just took it a few extra chapters. Where is the rest of God's plan? No wonder we don't teach the covenant. No wonder we don't teach whole Bible. Because we act as if Genesis 12 or 11 through Malachi is just this little add-on to Scripture that, you know, it, yeah, yeah, when, it, when we can find the verse that fits our doctrine or whatever we need, we'll use it. But as far as teaching goes, as far as laying the foundation goes, it's not important. The question is, you read the intro, you read the ending, you got the whole book. Yep, the intro and the ending. This is, again, the main thing taught in every seminary today. I shouldn't say every, I don't know. But, you know, in most seminaries today, this is what is being taught. Martyr wrote a letter to a Jew named Trifo. Now, whether this actually happened or not, we're not 100% sure. Um, but it's written as if it did. He basically was... Um, met some Jew as he was waiting to get on a boat, and they were having this little debate back and forth and, um, over the Messiah. And three significant aspects of the rest of the Scripture, outside of what his main points were, according to him are this. Number one was prophecies pointing to Christ. So the rest of Scripture has things pointing to him. Two, scriptures pointing to the universal moral code for every believer. So, you know, you might say the Ten Commandments, but really just the moral code. And number three, uh, the remainder was written to the Jews in order, since God rejected them, is no longer useful. So all of the rest of the Bible that he does not think is important fall under these three categories. Okay? So prophecies pointing to Christ, which I would say the whole Old Testament does that, even Genesis. Universal code, I would say the whole Old Testament does deal with that. And the remainder was written not to the Jews, which is no longer useful, but is actually his covenant that was to the Jews, which is now the same covenant, which is to you. When we talk about new covenant, as we've talked many times, we're not talking about a brand new contract. It's the same contract with, you know, a new signature. When you rent a house to somebody, you have a contract. They move out, you take a new contract. The contract reads the same, but it's for a new tenant, right? You can maybe look at it that way. That analogy isn't perfect, but... That's what we're saying here. This was a Jewish covenant. It was not a whole new thing written. Same stuff, but now we're going to welcome Israel back. That's part of the new covenant. I divorced them. Now we need a new covenant. A new one because you are now a new tenant coming back into my house. And that was the Gentiles 
and the lost sheep of Israel. Well, he says the God of Israel is among the church rather than the Jews in, the rest of, in this letter to Trypho. So that the church was the final climax of what God's plan really was. And as far as the Jews go, he's done with them. He says, God instituted circumcision so you and you only might suffer the infliction due those who crucified Christ. Since circumcision of the flesh is the mark you can be distinguished from other men. Is that what the Bible says circumcision was? No. The Bible says it's a sign of the covenant. Yet, this is how an early church father that is used as the basis for modern church today saw the Jews. What amazes me today is that almost every church denomination we have today church, uh, goes back to a church father. Most of them from the 15 and 1600s. Look how screwed up it was already in 107. Paul warned there would be wolves and sheep's clothing that were going to come among you. And they came in immediately. You can see a separation that began in the church here. And I think that this is one of the reasons why I think it's important to see this history because you need to know why the church thinks the way it does today. It isn't because of the Bible. It is because of history, church history. We'll talk about that coming up. So things begin to spiral downward. Ideas turn into actions. The early church was dealing with a, a number of heresies as well. You had all the Gnostics that were coming about. We've got all these Gnostic books that have been found, over 2,000, they say, um, which was basically, for the most part, the Gnostic world was saying that there was a material and a spiritual world. The spiritual world was more valuable and meaningful, and therefore, you wanted to just basically focus on the spiritual, not the physical. And that may sound good on one hand, but what they were saying, there was this heretic uh, teacher called Marcion who came in 200 AD, and he said that there were these two gods, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was really kind of more of the physical. The God of the New Testament is more about the spiritual. And Marcion, those same attitudes, you could go to almost any church today and have that same idea, that there is an Old Testament God that's really harsh and mean, and then there's this Jesus who's a loving kind, wouldn't hurt a flea. You know, when he comes back, he's coming back with, you know, wings and bells and, you know, not a sword coming out of his mouth, not feet like burnished bronze. Yeah. So, it's... That, yeah, he had a different canon than what we do. Marcion did have his own canon, his own books. And he left out pretty much the Old Testament and a few of the New Testament books as well. Anything that had law in it was pretty much kicked out. And so, yeah. So he bi-theistic? Bi-theistic? I got to think about that one. <laughs> Um, anyway, two major church fathers are going to respond to Marcion because he was considered to be a heretic. Um, one was Tertullian, but they didn't disagree with everything he said. In 200, Tertullian says of the God of Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there is no other. He's going to explain the differences in the old and the new by saying this. The commandments of the Torah are degrading and unworthy of an enlightened people. They were given to the Jews to curve idolatry and greed. So the Ten Commandments weren't given to you, which, by the way, is also taught in the church today. They were given to the Jews because the Jews had this propensity of evil. I'll tell you what, then I'm a Jew. <laughs> okay, I have a sin nature in me that is deep and dark. But no, apparently it was given to the Jews. He says, 
They were given to the Jews to curb idolatry and greed, which was unique to them. Not shared by the rest of the human race, their trail of crimes culminating in the killing of Christ, Jews were always unworthy of election. Now they've lost it. God's choice is now transferred to the Gentiles who are capable at living at a higher level than the Jews. So, this is what he's teaching. Um, Irenaeus of 200 also reconciles the two testaments by saying God's history with man was continuous from creation to the end. His purpose hasn't changed. He said this, God chose the Jews in order to prepare them for Christ, but they rejected and murdered him. Because the Jews rejected Jesus, God granted their inheritance to Gentiles alone. Jews who boast of being Israel are disinherited from the grace of God. Jews are no longer useful. Again, no faithfulness of God. It reminds me of Moses up on the mountain where he says, God, don't wipe them out because if you do, then the people are going to say, you weren't strong enough to bring them into the promised land. Let me tell you, if Jews have been rejected, then God wasn't strong enough to be faithful and keep his covenant. Judaism is based upon the teachings of the rabbis, but Christianity is based upon the teachings of the church fathers. This is what we went through. Remember, I, th this is what I wanted you to see is how Talmudic Judaism thought. It doesn't matter what scripture says. What matters is what the rabbi says it says. If you were here for that. If not, go back and listen to it. Christianity is no different. Christianity has been built upon the foundation of not what scripture says completely, but on what the church fathers said. Now, I am using Christianity in general terms here. Keep that in mind. I know that there are Christians who do not believe this, who do not act this way. But we can see a, a broad stroke here that that is what takes place in many churches today. <clears throat> so to say that Christianity is based on the New Testament is to say Judaism is based on the Old Testament. Okay? Both are wrong. Christianity is not based on the New Testament. It is based on the Bible, Old and New. Judaism is not based on the Old Testament. It's based on the Old and New. Because the Old Testament is simply the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You have to have both. But you see, Marcion split them, and these two people are then trying to reconcile this split and making them two separate messages to two separate people, when in fact, that's not what the Bible says at all. So, it's important to see... I guess look in the mirror that Christianity has fallen into that same trap that Judaism has fallen into, that Catholicism has fallen into. It doesn't matter what scripture says, what matters is what I was taught and what my, my rabbi says, what my pope says, whatever, my, my, my church pastor says. No, what matters is what scripture says and we have to think biblically, not doctrinally, theologically, denominationally. I want to show you here real quickly. There were about 16 million Jews in the first century. You can see here in the darker colors there, this is where they were in the first century. Okay, by the end of the second century, look how it spread there in purple. Okay, the Jews are on that side. Christianity at the second century then spreads on that side. They, they grow together. All right, now that, that stands to reason. Uh, Rome as well. Uh, Constantine basically, you know, forced everybody to become a Christian, his whole army and all of that in the 325 AD. And so it stands to reason that you're going to see the Christian growth, but notice the Jewish growth here. Okay? And by that, I don't mean rabbinic Judaism necessarily either. There were many believing messianic Jews. Show you some more church fathers here around this time. Origen, he was a, a good Christian man, but just had some wrong prophetic views. Um, <clears throat> basically, his views were used by Hitler later, and he used Plato's philosophy to allegorize the Bible. He was the first one to really allegorize prophecy. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't allegories in the Bible. There are, but he made it primarily all about an allegory. 
So what ends up happening is the church leaders, they don't see the Jews as a, a distinct people anymore because they see that the church has replaced them. This is where we get what is called replacement theology. Many churches believe that today. The church has replaced Israel. Just exactly what we've been talking about here. He said the church being God's true Israel, according to the spirit, the Jewish people no longer had any vocation or reason to exist. Again, removing the whole idea of the prophecy of marriage all through the Old Testament and God coming for his bride. Okay? That's why that message Logan did is so, so important. For you guys to see what God's plan was from old to revelation. Eusebius writes in Ecclesiastical History in 300. He's covering the time period of the apostles to the 300s. Um, <clears throat> this is the authoritative church history used in seminaries today as well. You're going to hear Eusebius quoted constantly. Again, I believe he was a godly man. He just had some wrong doctrines because of the world he was growing up in. He says the Jews have no merit and are a threat to the church. Purim, at Purim, he said Jews sacrificed Christians in rebellion against Jesus. During this time, the Romans were anti-Semitic, and so they also had these stories. And these stories are going to then be used to trump up false charges for pogroms and Jewish persecution throughout history as well. We even see that happening right now uh, as well. Um, just crazy stories about that. First of all, for them to sacrifice a Christian, that would be wrong. Even to rabbinic Judaism, that would be wrong. It's silly to say that they would do such a thing. He said, uh, canons are made saying this. If any clergyman shall enter into a synagogue of Jews or heretics, meaning the Nazarenes, to pray, let him be deposed. If a layman does this, let him be excommunicated. So now you can see that these Nazarenes are stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Christians, this is what they're saying about them. If, if you're a Christian and you want to do Passover or anything that has any Jewish appearance, you're to be excommunicated. You Nazarenes who believe in Yeshua, but are continuing to try and keep the narrow I believe they were the true remnant. Where do they go? Okay, it was a, a narrow road. <coughs> a renouncing statement for the Jews was developed in the 300s that said this. If you basically uh, were a new convert and had any Jewish background, Nazarene background, let's say you were practicing Passover or whatever, and you were coming into the church, you had to say this prayer. Conf you confess and denounce, I conf confess and denounce verbally the whole Hebrew people, and forthwith declare with a whole heart and sincere faith that he desires to be re received among the Christians. He must say the following, I renounce all custom rites, legalisms, unleavened breads, and sacrifices of lambs of the Hebrew, and all the other feasts of the Hebrews, sacrifices, prayers, aspersions, purifications, sanctifications, propitiations, fasts, and new moons, and sabbaths, and superstitions, and hymns, and chants, and observances, and synagogues, and food, and drink of the Hebrews. In one word, I renounce everything Jewish. So, what, what did he renounce? Yeah. Uh, what, what, was Jew, what was Jesus, by the way? Oh, a Jew. Oh, okay. So, I renounce everything Jesus you might say. But see, they weren't picking up on this. Why do you think that some of these church fathers took such a strong stance on I think it's spiritual. Um, I think there's a couple of things. <clears throat> Rabbinic Judaism didn't help matters. Satan was using that falsehood. And just like today, what we would do by keeping Passover is often then associated with that. And I think these early church fathers were doing the same thing. Um, but I also think there's a spiritual aspect that, you know, Satan wants to destroy them. 
Satan throughout all of history, as you're going to see next time I speak, I think we're going to get into Islam. You're going to see, why, do, why does Islam hate Christians and Jews? Those are the two primary ones. Well, because they're, the, they're God's people. And Satan has gone after them and will continue to do so. One, we're going to talk about Martin Luther for a short time. But that will change, and he will become even more evil than this on that. Uh, Clementine, recognitions in the 300s from Eastern, the Eastern Church here. If a Jew became a Christian, he must say, I renounce the whole worship of the Hebrews, circumcision, all its legalisms, unleavened bread, Passover, sacrifices of lambs, feast of weeks, trumpets, jubilees, and on and on and on. I absolutely renounce every custom and institution of Jewish laws. Again, same thing that we're seeing here. Guys, Passover is not a Jewish feast. It's a biblical one, and as you know, but for those listening, if you've never been a part of one, you better get to be a part of one and see that it still is pointing to his second coming as well. He said, I will not drink of this cup again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. Constantine comes and he converts you know, uh, his army and, and most of Rome to Christianity in 313. And he makes Christianity an official state religion. <clears throat> There's debate out there whether he was a real Christian or not. May have been, may have just been a Christian with bad theology. Um, but a lot of people do believe that he made a lot of laws that he, he Christianized things in order to gain the control, uh, you know, get Christians as well as pagans and kind of have a foot in both worlds. I don't know. But he changed the days of the week and the months um, officially because in the Bible, you don't see anything about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because Monday was for the moon, Tuesday for Tau, Wednesday for Woden, Thursday for Thor, Friday for Frey, Saturday for Saturn, and Sunday for the sun. All the months of the year were named after gods and you know, uh, emperors who were considered to be gods. <clears throat> and so he changes the Sabbath to Sunday and the Catholic Church to this day says, oh, I was supposed to get somebody that, you, and I forgot. Um, to this day, the Catholic Church has in their catechisms and whatnot that Sunday worship is a sign of their authority. And that when people go to worship on Sunday, that they are bowing and being submissive to the Catholic Church and its authority. Now, again, I do not believe it is sinful to worship on Sunday. Okay? But... It is not the Sabbath day, okay? Uh, this is when it was officially changed. He forbid the Jews to keep the festivals, just like all these other people had been teaching. He is now solidifying it, and he replaces them with Easter and Christmas primarily, which is Christianizing secular things. Again, maybe his intentions were pure, but part of his intentions clearly were not. It was what we have been reading in these prayers. We don't want to have anything to do that looks Jewish. I'm going to start saying maybe anything to do that looks Nazarene. Maybe that'll make a little bit more sense. Well, once Rome becomes Christian, the only people who aren't Christian are, guess who? Jews. The Nazarenes. They would not conform to this. Listen, God told us to do these things. God told us these commandments. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be a faithful remnant. Lord, they've torn down your altars. They're trying to kill. They've killed all your prophets. They've destroyed truth in the streets. They're trying to do the same with us. But God says, don't worry. I've got a remnant. I'm going to be with you. And let me tell you, we can trace throughout history, there has been a Nazarene remnant ever since Christ. And we won't get it to it today, but there's a good chance Christopher Columbus may have been one of them. That he may have brought that remnant to America. We'll get to that later. Yeah, I know. It's, it's coming. So the Council of Nicaea in 325, the focus was Arianism, but there was other things that were discussed. Um, it said this in part of the, the council. 
For it is unbecoming beyond measure that on this holiest of festivals, uh, Easter, we should follow the customs of the Jews. Henceforth, let us have nothing in common with this odious people. And so Easter and Passover were around the same time. And so Passover is a celebration of the death and resurrection and second coming of Jesus. So they took a pagan festival and said, let us make this about the death and resurrection of Jesus with eggs and bunnies. So the father of the Eastern Orthodox Church, John Christostom, known as the bishop with the golden tongue from Constantinople, um, he basically wrote the issues of, uh, of an issue of sermons against the Jews. He said, the Jews are the most worthless of all men. They are wretches, greedy, rapacious. They are per perfidious murderers of Christ. They worship the devil. Their religion is a sickness. He goes on, the Jews are the odious murderers of Christ. For killing God, there is no expiation possible, no indulgence or pardon. Christians may never cease vengeance, and the Jews must live in servitude forever. God always hated the Jews. It is incumbent upon all Christians to hate the Jews. Okay, you can see that it's starting to get worse. All right. Um, Did you go back? They already had it. And they celebrate yeah. it. Yeah. And it wasn't just the Jews. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I do not. And they didn't murder him. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay my life down. So nobody murdered him. The, Jesus gave his own life. He, he, yeah. Romans 11. This is what I was saying before. It says, if some of the branches were broken off, speaking of Jews and Gentiles being branches that are connected to the vine of Jesus, the root. If some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, you Gentiles, were grafted in among them, the Jews, and with them, the Jews, became a partaker of the root... God, the covenant, and the fatness of the olive tree do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, replacement theology. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but Fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell, the Jews, severity. But, to, but toward you, Gentiles, goodness. Has God been severe to them? Yes, he has, because they did reject him. But was he unfaithful, and did he cut them off as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all, which I don't think I have in here. Maybe I do. I'll see here. Um, but in Romans, just in case, he says, So what then? Did they fall as to stumble or fall beyond recovery? Certainly not. Anyway, he goes on and he says, Paul here, put toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. They also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. Does that sound like being cut off, rejected forever? No. Yeah, or that, it, yeah, God hates them. Not at all. For God is able to graft them in again. And he says, and he will graft them in again, it goes on to say. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't be boastful. Don't boast over those branches. He says, yes, they've experienced a, a blindness. But only in part and only for a time. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. God's faithfulness. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them. God's covenant with them is still there? Yes when I take away their sins. Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants. 
Oh, no, no, it's, it's our covenant now. No, never was. You're grafted into theirs. The receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, theirs are from the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Romans 3, what advantage then is there being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. I mean, I could give you verse after verse after verse that's saying that everything these early church fathers are saying that now our modern Christianity is, is spitting out is not biblical at all. So Christostom was uh, very successful in, in all of these lies that he was spreading about them killing Jews and whatnot. And in the West, it was no better. Uh, one of his contemporaries, St. Ambrose of uh, Italy, um, they're burning down synagogues, they're persecuting them. Christostom says, I hereby declare that it was I who set fire to the synagogue. Indeed, I gave the orders for it to be done so that there should no longer be any place where Christ is denied. An early church father burned down the Jewish synagogue. Now, is this a way to evangelize? No. You see, what we were supposed to do, one of the verses I didn't talk about in Romans here, is that we're supposed to make Israel envious so that they will accept the Messiah. And you're going to see that Luther is not going to accept them because... They didn't accept the Messiah. Well, why would they accept the Messiah when this is what Christianity is for them? Listen on One for Israel on their podcast. They have hundreds of Jews that are coming to know the Messiah as Messiah, Jesus as Messiah. Time and time again, all they know of Christianity is hate and persecution of the Jew. That's today. How, is this how we spread the gospel? Well, with this kind of theology, no wonder. St. Gregory, in the West, he said, Assassins of the prophets, companions of devil, a race of vipers, a Sanhedrin of demons, enemies of all that is beautiful, and their lewd grossness. So the tables were turned. Christians hated Jews more than even pagans. You know, that's interesting. Uh, that's what's going on in Israel right now. Isn't it? By the way, there are many Messianic Nazarenes that are fighting in Israel right now, today. And yet, Israel is the enemy. Gaza, which is pagan, they're the ones that are being supported. You see how the tables got turned and things haven't changed? Augustine, in the 400, takes a slightly different perspective. Not a good one, just not as crazy. Um, he was still very anti-Semitic, but he thought Jews needed to be left alone as an example of what God does to those who reject Jesus. And that became kind of a prevailing idea for the next, well, from five to 600 years. And they were excluded from politics. They were pretty much, you know, uh, the black sheep, you might say. Emperor Justinian, in the 500s, issues a permanent Christian state policy which said, they, the Jews, shall enjoy no honors. Their status shall reflect the baseness which in their souls they have elected and desired. Yeah, that'll bring them to Christ. I hope that you can see here, guys, the, the history, and I think why history is important, as I said before, it's because it allows us to understand why we're experiencing what we're experiencing today. It is not based on the Bible. It is based on the same thing rabbinic Judaism is based on. It doesn't matter what scripture says. What matters is what I know, what I've grown up with, and what my church says. What my church fathers say. There were thousands and thousands of Jewish Nazarenes at this time, but hardly any really writings have survived intact because of the persecution, the pogroms, uh, you name it. Were the Nazarenes well, recruiting Christians? Um, or were they just Jews who believed in Jesus? I don't know on that. For the most part, no. Nazarenes and Jews 
were never very evangelistic. Um, it was more like, we're here, we'll live our truth, you're welcome. But they didn't go out as much. Point is, I think we need to pray. We need to repent of this church history. We talk about generational sins. We talk about spiritual warfare. We talk about these things. Well, guys, this is what the church has been built upon. No wonder there's so many spiritual battles going on in the church. We have called God a liar. We have called God unfaithful. We have said, God, you're not powerful enough to do what you've said, and we've boasted over those branches. Well, be afraid, because God can cut us off too. And frankly, I think that's what's happening. I think we see the church falling apart, that the Spirit of God has left many Christian churches because we're no longer keeping the Word of God. We have become a church that is filled with lawlessness, the spirit of Antichrist instead. The spirit of lawlessness. So we need to repent. Remember that they have experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. And we need to be praying that we would be better loving witnesses with a godly attitude of faith and perseverance, knowing that he has preserved a remnant, and our job is to make Israel envious. And you will not do so by having pagan gods on your lips, saying God is a liar, and he got rid of his commandments. No Jew is going to listen to you about Jesus when we say that Jesus was a man of lawlessness. That is not the Messiah that they're looking for. So with that, we're going to close. Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you so much for your word. and We just want to repent. Lord, we just corporately just lift up our hearts to you and say we are sorry that we have been a part of this. We're sorry that we didn't trust your word. We're sorry that we allowed culture and, and just denominational beliefs be our guide in life more than your word. God, we repent that we have been boastful in thinking that we were special. We are special because you loved us, but not more special than any of your people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for grafting us into that promise that you gave to your people. For theirs is the covenants. Theirs is the glory. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the temple worship. And we look forward to a time when we will be united again because, Lord, we know that you came back to die to, to bring in to the, as a bride of Christ your people again and that you were loving and faithful enough to allow us to join in. We thank you for your mercy to us. May we never be blinded May we never be boastful, but may we humbly accept and respond to that message now and go out and, and tell your people that they have not been rejected, that you died for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.